How old are they all? Uh, six, five, three, and almost one. Nice. You say that because you don't have kids. <laughs> you got a little zoo going there. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, folks that have kids are like, wow, that's a lot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Hello. Hello. And I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. Um, Joaquin is trying to connect, but he's having some issues uh, either hearing us or us hearing him. So uh, he may join us later. But uh, in the meantime, um, AJ and I are just going to start talking about SQL versus NoSQL and, you know, some of the implications that come in with JavaScript. So... Um, AJ, why don't you go ahead and get us started? What, what SQL and NoSQL solutions have you used? So, um, I've used MySQL. I've played, you know, I've played with a couple of different SQL databases. I've even played with MS SQL and Oracle and I'm a couple sorry. other things. What? I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, they're all pretty similar. And then SQLite, it's kind of nice. Um, and then as far as NoSQL goes, I've played a little bit with Redis, um, more so with CouchDB, and I have not yet looked at Mongo because it lacks um, a couple important features that, well, it, they don't yet have it running on ARM. And since, uh, and so since it uh, doesn't run on ARM, and I have got a couple projects that I like to do on ARM, I just haven't taken the time to learn it yet because I figure when they get it running on that, then I'll investigate it. Until then, you know, there's plenty of other databases that do. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, so I've used MySQL. I've also used MSSQL, which is the Microsoft SQL. Um, I worked at a place that used Oracle, and my interface with Oracle was I would go and talk to the team of DBAs that managed Oracle, and then they would manage Oracle. And I think that's a pretty common pattern. Um, SQLite is pretty common. I also use PostgreSQL. Yeah, um, I have not yet used that myself. I should. Uh, I have. Yeah, it it for me, it's just it's extremely stable. It's becoming a little more mainstream. And honestly, after some of the crap that Oracle's pulled with some of the other open source stuff that they have, I just I don't trust them with MySQL. And so you know that that's part of the move is. Um, I think eventually they're going to figure out that having a free alternative to Oracle, the the Oracle database, Oracle's going to go, oh, well, um, how can we get rid of this without pissing a bunch of people off? Well, I think they're already on that track and they're doing yeah. a pretty good job of pissing people off about it, yeah. too. So anyway, I have heard a few things that they've added to the engine and stuff that make it better. But anyway, um, I've, I've also talked to several people that either use or work on PostgreSQL, and it just seems like they're going places that are really, really interesting. So, I mean, we can get into some of that. I did an interview with uh, Josh Berkus, um, who's the, he was the team lead for the core team for PostgreSQL. And I, I don't know if he still is or not, but anyway, um, this was, I think it was last year, but anyway, he was talking about a lot of the interesting things that they have going on there. And so I'll, uh, I'll put a link up to that interview, um, as, as well as a link up to where you can find information with him, uh, or for him. Um, as far as, um, no SQL solutions. I've played a little bit with Redis, but not, not enough to really be conversant about what it is. 
um, beyond, you know, the basics. Um, I have used CouchDB and MongoDB. Um, I also wind up speaking a lot about Cassandra. Mm, and so, um, and, and that's always a fun topic. I, I don't know what kind of support these uh, solutions have in things like Node.js or, um, you know, any of the other engines that allow you to run JavaScript on the server, which is where I'm assuming you'd probably be connecting to these. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that too, but um, I'm trying to think what other classifications of NoSQL I've used. I haven't done a whole lot with um, HBase or Big Data, uh, Project Voldemort, but but those are out there as well. <clears throat> so um, I wanted to get into the idea of why NoSQL is attractive. Yeah. And I think coming from the Ruby world, you've got a lot of experience with this too, probably. Mm -hmm. um, so the object types are extremely loose in JavaScript, right? right? So you can create a prototype for something or you can just return a literal object. And so with that, um, like the music application I'm working on and oh, I'm getting my Raspberry Pi soon. I'm really oh, excited cool. about that. But so the little music server I'm working on um, I want to take like 10,000 songs and iterate through them and be able to do a regex against them and be able to say, you know, so I could, I can type in the search bar a regex and I'll iterate through it and, um, you know, give me back the results that match. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's really flexible. Um, cause the whole thing is stored in memory or, you know, it, it's stored out somewhere else, but then I can read the whole thing in memory cause it's small enough. Right. Um, and then be able to do lots of complex operations on it um, that would take uh, like either a lot to do with SQL or just still aren't possible with SQL. Um, but so, so with key value stores, it seems simple to me to be like, OK, multiple get a bunch of these keys and then I'll do more stuff on them. Um, whereas with SQL, you're a little bit more um, restricted, but then you get some other optimizations. Like it's really fast to search on, say, a time or you know something that has a clear. Mm -hmm. index. Right. So one of the things I want to jump in on real quick, just to kind of set things up, because, um, you know, some of the things you're talking about, you can definitely do with no SQL and some of the things you can't. Um, but the, the trick is, is that when you're talking about no SQL, <clears throat> you're, you're talking about such a varied um, sampling of database engines that it makes it really tricky to just say you can or can't do that with no SQL, because ultimately, if there's something you want to do with no SQL, you probably can. Can yeah. you do all of those things with the same database uh, system? Maybe, maybe not. And so when, when you're talking about it, you know, there are usually two or three classifications out there. Um, that the, they fall under. And even then, you're talking about such disparate uh, feature sets that you may or may not be able to count on them. And so you have the key value stores like Redis, uh, Memcached. Um, I haven't heard much about Tokyo Cabinet for a while, so I, I don't know if that one's still out there. Um, but, uh, or Memcached, I guess, is the way that it's whatever. E either way, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, so those you, you literally just put a value in under a key and off you go. Um, you also have the document databases, which are kind of more the CouchDB, MongoDB flavor, where effectively what you're storing in there is a document. And if you're familiar with the JSON object notation or, you know, or just JavaScript objects in general, they look very, very similar. In fact, um, CouchDB uses uh, JSON is is the API is JSON. Right. And uh, and Mongo kind of does, too, or at least 
yeah they, they similar enough yeah they use bson which is a binary json and and i don't know if they just kind of compile it down to uh, uh byte byte strings or what do you call them um but basically you know they they just compile them down to byte codes and you know send binary data across instead of um, you know, UTF-8 encoded or whatever uh, data. Well, it's, it's still but almost the same as the text. They just put like a um, a length, a, a byte with how what the length is. That way yeah. they can search quicker. But the actual format is almost exactly the same. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's why they called it BSON is because it looks a lot like JSON when they encode it and, and decode it. Um, but yeah, so you have things like that and then you've got the, uh, kind of the other big data, um, column oriented stuff like Cassandra and really what it is, is with Cassandra, a column is a key and a value. And so effectively what it is, is it's just multi-tiered key value is, is the way that it mostly works out. But the, the records you get back, again are the the sorry i got i got something in my throat anyway are basically the same you know object structure that you're you're talking about with the other schemaless systems so you can you can very cleanly you know convert them to javascript objects mm-hmm. so with your work what when have you leaned towards um whoops sorry about that no sequel versus sequel so it, it's kind of an interesting thing um I, I tend to use the SQL databases for most things still, um, mainly because the solutions are, are pretty well baked around SQL because it's been around forever. And so yeah, and it is kind of nice with Ruby because you have like all that code gets generated for you. So it's it's no pain really to. Um, well, well, not just with Ruby and Rails, but, uh, you know, just in general, um, the, you know, authenticating okay. through a database. You know, where you have the, the user and the password or the password hash or the, you know, however you want to do that. I mean, these problems are very well understood. Um, the, you know, a lot of the ways that the drivers and everything connect, you know, they're very mature. There are C libraries that you can just hook into to basically write your drivers for whatever language you're using. Where a lot of these systems, it's not because they don't work well for these things. It's just that they're newer. Um, a lot of the solutions for using them and connecting to them aren't as mature and sometimes have problems. Um, but at the same time, I tend to go more toward NoSQL for things that either need to scale, uh, scale up because um, you can scale SQL and people have been doing it for years, you know, where you have a cluster of, you know, SQL servers, MySQL or <clears throat> PostgreSQL or, you know, MSSQL or whatever. Um, but it seems like a lot of these other systems are set up to scale a lot more seamlessly. Mm-hmm. For example, with Cassandra, all you have to do is set up the server. You tell it which cluster it belongs to. You tell it to auto bootstrap and you tell it which server to seed off of. You can also tell it which index to start at, but you don't have to. And then you just add it to the cluster. You just, so is there, you just flip is there it on. Like a front there where... Um, when you do a particular query, it goes in through one machine and then figures out which of the machines in the cluster is going to have that key. Yes, that's the way it works, but you can send your query to any machine in the cluster. Okay, so any machine in the cluster has and at least knows the mechanism by which it can sort a key and figure out which other machine in the cluster will have it. Right. It, it uses a Bloom filter 
um, to, to figure out if the key is there. Um, I believe that's on the individual nodes though, but yeah, it, it does each, each, uh, cluster or each node in the system knows what the ranges are for the other servers. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when, when it gets a query, if it, if it, uh, can handle it itself, then it's, it's, It'll send the data back as soon as it uh, gets enough consistency, enough uh, responses from the other nodes in the system to verify the consistency of the data. And it works the same way for the writes. So it's all configurable consistency and then the rest of it. Yeah, it just it says, OK, I've got this range. Go look it up. Um, and then, you know, it, it'll look in the, the bloom filter for the table figure out if it's there and then if it is it'll send the data back mm -hmm. and, and that that's what happens on the node and and there there are a lot of other things that go on you know in the background to make that happen but it, it's it's pretty resilient <clears throat> and you can set it up to you know save multiple copies and stuff like that which is which is really another thing that that's kind of nice is that um when when i've dealt with sql solutions when we needed to scale up because our data set became too large what you wind up doing is you start looking at solutions to shard the data in other words um you look for solutions to break it up into groups right um and uh so then the thing is is that you know obviously then the whole database isn't stored on one machine but it, it complicates things a ton in order to do that because then your queries have to go to different machines for different information um, and it, you know it just kind of becomes a pain in the neck because you have to keep track of which shards are on which machines doing which jobs so and it sounds like you end up putting more of the relationship logic for that back into your application as opposed to the database handling the sharding um, yeah the this the SQL solutions that I've used um, I haven't really looked at sharding with Postgres and I wouldn't be surprised if they've built some mechanisms in but uh, for example with MySQL um, so typically when you're talking about database sharding, you're either talking about taking a range out of this table and sticking it into another, you know, identical database basically. And so you have half the data for the table in, in one system and the other half in the other system. And, you know, and then you can split it up into, you know, basically horizontal ranges that way. But then what happens is if you want a comprehensive list or you need to look up a set of users that, that span across different servers, then then you're playing the game of querying multiple machines to get your data. And then you have to cobble it all together in code and things like that, where with a lot of these uh, no SQL solutions, um, they set it up so that it'll seamlessly do all that and then return you one data set. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can set up, you know, something that sits in front of your your database system on a SQL solution and actually then just query that and then have it query in the background the, the rest of the, the stuff. But, um, you know, for, for me, it was just really painful to set up, uh, you mm -hmm. know, beyond that, you know, it works. And, and there are a lot of companies out there that are using it using their SQL databases this way and you know they, they make it work just fine but you know for me it's just nice to be able to say okay you know I'm just going to keep throwing data on the on the heap and then make it work and uh, the other thing is is that um, with the SQL databases if you set up an index it sets up a b-tree uh -huh. to do the lookup 
and uh, and so basically it's a big O. What is it? A big O N for for the number of records. I, I, I think it was like in login. It yeah, that sounds right. It is something like that. So um, you know, as your data set grows larger, then your your queries take longer. Well, of course they take longer, but with the tree, it's like uh, by you know. So right. for every power of two right. that you increase in, in scale, you increase only by one right. in your search. Right. So it is a login where um, Netflix did an experiment with Cassandra. And I'm talking about Cassandra because I know the most about it. Right. Um, but Netflix did an experiment. And I'll, I'll put a link to their findings in the show notes as well, where they they were doing rights. And part of the process for rights is actually doing the lookup in the Bloom filter to make sure that the, the record exists or doesn't before it writes so that it can you know do an update versus a create. And um, what they found was that they scaled it up to 288 servers, Cassandra servers in the cluster. And, uh, you know, they they show with like 96 and 144. And I think they had 48 in there as well. So they had they had different clusters and then they put different loads on them. And they found that uh, doing writes to a Cassandra cluster is big O one. In other words, it's constant. It's constant time to do to do a write, And that includes the time to do the lookup. So, you know, things like that, they, they find these solutions that, that give you high availability. Um, and I do want to say with the SQL database, you can set the hash to instead of being a B tree. Well, I mean, with uh, MSQL, for example, you can set instead of being a, a tree to actually act as an, a hash. Yes. And, and that's, that's effectively what a bloom filter is, is it's a hash. In fact, it, it, there's a little more to it and there's, there's a lot more math to it. Really, really fascinating. If you want to go look something up, you know, go figure out how to bloom filter works because it uses like three different checksums or four different checksums to, you know, to do the lookups and stuff. And so it, it's, it's, but anyway, it's ex- extremely efficient and, uh, you know, a terrific way of, of, of storing references to data. But, um, yeah, and, and that, that's, <clears throat> that's effectively what you're talking about is that, you know, with a hash, the lookup time is big O one and with, you know, with a B tree, it's big O login, I think. So, so in terms of, uh, JavaScript, the, the databases you get in the browser are local storage, which is a synchronous key value store and index DB, which is an asynchronous key value store with indexes. And there was web SQL, but it's been taken out of the standard. Um, so I think you can still use it in some places, but it's not going to be carried forward and it's not going to be developed in the browsers that don't already have it. Um, but the, the interesting thing with that problem that they're solving is I, well, with the, the amount of data that you can store is five megabytes in local storage. And I mm-hmm. think index DB has something similar and there's supposed to be, um, a user agent, like, uh, you, you can, you can somehow make a request for more storage and then it should pop up a prompt and say, uh, you know, this application would like to increase from five megabytes to 10 megabytes of storage, allow mm-hmm. or deny, you know, right. so there, there should be something like that. But except on mobile devices, I mean, and even in mobile devices, five megabytes, you can almost manage in memory, you know, right. Um, but uh, for for the desktops, like you could you could really take your whole five megabytes of data and just stick it into local storage as mm-hmm. a single key, and then um, you know just iterate over it in in JavaScript on on your own. Um, the nice thing about IndexedDB is when you're looking at something like 
your uh, mobile devices where you, you wouldn't necessarily want to pull or you may not be allowed to by the operating system to pull a full five megabytes into memory. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can index certain columns and do queries on that and then get um, they do. The, it's actually a, a pretty good idea. They have this cursor object where you you give some sort of description as, as to how you want to go through the database. And then with the cursor, you can go through item by item. So you're not pulling all the things into memory at once. Mm-hmm. And then since you're right there in the browser, it's not like it's having to do these these big round trips where it's inefficient to iterate through things one by one. And you're probably not going to have more than, you know, so many thousand items, you know, maybe 50,000 items or something that you can store depending on how much data you've got about those items. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, five megabytes is, is not a lot of space and even 10. Right. Yeah. What one thing that so are, are you storing strings or can you actually put objects in there without serializing them or uh, so with local storage you just store strings. So I've written a little wrapper over local storage. So uh-huh. instead of like get item, it's just get instead of set item, it's just set. And I convert everything back and forth to JSON. Right. Um, Wh- which makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's that's on my GitHub is JSON storage is the name of it. But just a thin little wrapper, nothing that you can't write yourself in about, you know. Yeah, I can't imagine it's too 30 lines or yeah. 50 lines, you know, really simple. Um, but the, so the interesting idea is the full text search, right? That's the big problem, no matter what kind of database you're using. It seems like the problem is simplest to approach from a SQL database. Mm-hmm. Like when you get to the point where you have a million records and, right. uh, you know, you have, say you have like a, a simple form with like a person, um, a name, a phone number, a bio that's like two or three sentences long, right. you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And you store a million of those records. Then it's at the point where you can't really mm, easily pull it into memory. So maybe with index DB, it's not so bad because you have this cursor and you can just pull one thing out at a time. Right. And then you can you can still do all your operations on it. It's not going to be too slow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that, that occurs to me, though, is that you could also um, use something like Lucene or Solar, which is a wrapper around Lucene on the back end and then basically store those results in the index DB and and know what the important indexes are on that data. Yeah. So that's what I want to ask you, because I figure you might have a little more experience with this is with with the full text queries, um, you know, whether you're using a SQL solution or a NoSQL solution, um, how what what's what's a good way to approach that or what's what does it look like? Because I have mm-hmm. not used either of the the popular um, full text databases. Right. So there, there's Lucene. And I, I have to admit that I haven't I mean, I've, I've downloaded it played with it, but I haven't actually used it in production. And that's um, Apache, right? Yes. Yes. It's an Apache project. Both Lucene and Solar are Apache projects. Okay. Um, you can also find out a whole bunch about that. I, I interviewed their team lead as well. Um, but, uh, on teach me to code.com anyway, um, really interesting. They actually store the files in some kind of indexed manner. And so the lookups are really fast. Um, just because it, it is aimed specifically at indexing the data that you want. Um, what, what you're talking about though, is kind of a fuzzy text search, you know, or a, a full text search where it's, you know, it has these words in it somewhere. And yeah. uh, I, I just don't know if IndexedDB is set up for that. Um, I am aware that uh, some of the other engines. Um, oh, for, it's certainly not set up for it, but you can because right. you can iterate over them. Right. It's, 
and it's local, there's not this overhead of the connection. I think it's doable. It's it is doable, but again, I mean, you're you're still waiting on that loop and doing regex, you know, comparisons and things. Where in a lot of cases, um, these full text engines like Lucene, they basically um, they can index across just one word, and so it's it's effectively just a lookup on that word. You know, mm-hmm. they, they index it, they kind of reverse index it that way. So, you know, it knows that it has that word in it because it indexed and, and you know, remembered that all of these different articles have this word in it. And so mm-hmm. then and so then all it has to do is uh, find the place where those two sets of data, you know, overlap and then they can send them back. And so, you know, they, they build huge, huge indexes. Um, you know, I, I know that some of the other engines you can do partial lookups on or ranged lookups. So if, for example, in Cassandra, if you set up something so that the, um, so that the key is a specific word or phrase, then you can say, I want everything in this range. So then basically you can get, um, so if you were looking for the word, um, I don't know, sit and you wanted things like sit, sitting and sit on and sit in and, and sat and yeah, and sat. So, you know, you can, you can just give it a couple of range queries or, or do a multi, multi get and, you know, give it the keys that you care about. And, uh, you know, um, anything that begins with sit, you just say, you know, from sit to, you know, sit Z or whatever, um, and then, then you can pull in the variants like sat, you know, and so you can do a range query and then you can do another, you know, just real quick get to get that other feature. And so, you know, depending on the capabilities of, of the, the engine that you're using and depending on, you know, how they manage their indexes, you, you can get results pretty quickly from a lot of the other NoSQL solutions. Whereas again, with the, the, the SQL solutions themselves, if you're dealing with the B tree lookup, you know, and you're looking through a lot of things, especially if you're doing a fuzzy search where, you know, you in, in MySQL and PostgreSQL, at least use the percent operator in your string. Um, they're just, they're just not that fast because yeah, they're, they, they're, they, they're doing these, these awesome string comparisons with regular expressions, but they have to iterate through everything to find them. And so the, the power of the search engine stuff is that it's all pre-built and you just tell it what to look for when you build the index and then it just does the rest of the work. And so you could build a lot of that on, um, something like uh, CouchDB or MongoDB, I think. Um, I know Cassandra does this really if, well. If you were to try to build it on CouchDB, it would be atrocious. If oh, you were really? to try to build some sort of text searching, because you can build um, indexed-based searches, mm-hmm. but um, the storage size is just going to increase. Yes, yes. In, in, in ways that you can't fathom. Yeah, and, and that's where Lucene does real well, is because it it stores it in a very, very concise way. And yeah, so, Couch is definitely not meant for that kind of query at all. I mean, yeah. I would never suggest that you attempt it. Okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not super familiar with the way that it works. One thing I do like about Couch though is that the API is JSON and, and HTTP, and that's a problem that's been solved for JavaScript. Yeah. And so it it's gotta be just super attractive for anybody doing anything with JavaScript. I do not know how well it scales though. Well, so here's the thing. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about CouchDB and why it's nice. So CouchDB is just the opposite of MSQL or my MySQL, right? Uh-huh. Um, with MySQL or you know SQL in general, 
you build your table and then you put your data into the tables and then you query and you get back your, your data. So like the thing that's attractive to me about SQL is that when I want to do something like particularly some sort of text query where it's not um, easy to say, you know, this is how you sort it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't do too bad at that. And right. it does does really good on on sorting on um, keys. Um, but then with CouchDB, it would be the worst thing ever to try to do a text query in because if you do that, you have to create a temporary view and it right. will iterate through every single key in the database. So it might be a little bit faster than um, pulling out the keys and batches and then doing it yourself mm-hmm. uh, because you do get the power of JavaScript. It uses like SpiderMonkey, I think, under right. the hood. Um, but it would it would iterate through every single key in the database in a not optimized fashion mm-hmm. and then match that way. So the but the way the reason that it's good is that if you have a, a decent idea of how your data looks, um, you don't have to go through all of the headache of setting up tables and the indexes and like all that. Like to me, that's just it's just painful. And then like you have to do these migrations with, um, you know, with well, I mean, Rails makes it pretty easy, but still, you you have to redefine your database and say, well, this was renamed to that, and and this gets updated. And um, with Couch, you just put a document into the database. It's it's mm-hmm. a key value store in the sense that every document has a unique ID, right. and and the database itself is just key value. It's you put in a key, you put in a JSON document, the end. Right. It, it expects JSON is is really the constraint on the value. Yeah. And then the thing that's neat though is if you know what your report should look like, mm-hmm. then the view is like your query in reverse. So right. you create a view that has a JavaScript uh, algorithm that that can determine what what report is generated by a document, mm-hmm. or I, I call it a report because that's what I would call it in SQL, right? But then as documents go into the database, mm-hmm. they run through each of the algorithms until one of them matches, right? Or until multiple of them, or multiple of them could match too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not until, but it's while. Right. So every single document goes through all of the the view algorithms. And then um, I could actually put in one document that contains 10 pieces of information and then iterate over that in the view and then return that to that view. So when you do a query on a view, what you're really doing is getting the report that's already been built. So there's no at when you're getting the document back, there's like zero latency in terms of a query. All it has to do is find the index where the data is and return it to you. It doesn't have Mm -hmm. to compare anything because all the comparisons are done as the data goes into the database, not as it comes out. Right. And that's the way most of the full text search engines work. Um, You can also add sources to them and then they'll effectively just iterate over the entire, you know, set of data that that it gets and do the same thing. But yeah, that's the, that's commonly approach the approach with all of these other systems too is you know you you put it into lucene and lucene says okay you know i'm gonna add it to the indexes that you've set up that you said you care about yeah so that that's the nice thing about couch so couch is a really good solution for for something where you the the queries are really well defined um like if you want to sort on some sort of date or something like that it's really simple to do um, and then you can return a subset from a view uh-huh. uh, really easily. But then if you if you ever wanted to do a text search, Couch is mm-hmm. just not for you. 
Um, But I've I've seen articles, people talking about matching up couch with Lucene or solar or it seems like there's one other one that's pretty popular. Yeah. Elasticsearch, I think, or something like that. Not that one. Um, There there are a few of them out there. Um, You know, the, the big. MapReduce is Hadoop, and then and then you can feed that into Lucene or something, and so it it'll you know, again it's it's just kind of a system for you know getting data and breaking it down into the I, I like the way you put it the reports that you want. Um, so it, it just does it with large amounts of data very well. Uh, the the Couch Node module are are pretty mature, mm-hmm. um, and so if you're using Node.js, Couch is a really nice one to go with. Um, and you can define your own keys, or you can use the UUIDs, and you can group things by these views. Um, and and so you can actually have um, as long as there's not really complicated relationships between things, it's it's pretty easy to use and pretty fun and pretty flexible. And then if you decide that you want to change your schema, you just change your application logic first, you know, so that you can account for old right. old values. And either you can just run over the entire database, which will be slow, um, or as you pull values out, like as they get accessed again, you just leave that mm-hmm. logic in your application. And then your application would just restructure the object. And then when it goes to save it, it would save the new version. Right. Um, so that lazy definition of your your schema, if you will, mm-hmm. is is kind of nice. Right. It, it seems like, though, and you kind of talked about this a little bit, is that you either have to migrate data or maintain backward compatibility. Yeah. And so and that that's something to be aware of. But again, I mean, if that's not a trade off you have to make very often, then, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it seems like a lot of these different solutions have these different trade-offs. You know, they, they have things that they're good at, good at and, and that's why you want to use them. For example, Redis, um, the, the couple of things that people really talk about there is that the lookups are blazing fast, key value. Uh, lookups, but then the other thing that uh, I keep hearing about Redis is that it has amazing, awesome set logic stuff built into it. And so, if you need to do any kind of set management or set logic, then Redis is a terrific way to go. Um, I've I've heard some limitations about how Mongo scales, but that it seems like that's a lot of the what people go with there. Um, Cassandra has shown that it can scale pretty much as as high as you want if you're willing to throw more hardware at it. Um, you know, and Project Voldemort, it, it gets out of your way. It removes all of the ceremony, so it doesn't do any data validation or anything. So if you want to write or read to it and you're willing to manage a lot of that on your own, then it's blazing fast. And so, so have you have you used Mongo much? A little bit. I, I've never actually used it at scale. Okay. Um, I was playing with a project where I was building a blog on MongoDB and I was actually using Sinatra. Um, and it's, it's reasonably simple to connect to and, you know, use the libraries that allow you to work with it. Um, and that one has great, uh, no JS support as well. Yeah. The, there are a couple of things that I don't love about MongoDB. Um, the, the main thing is, is that whenever I talk about it, there's somebody that, uh, you know, just seems to be an absolute fanboy of MongoDB more than any of the other ones. And so if, if you talk about anything else, um, you know, it seems like they're jumping all over you, you know, why aren't you using MongoDB? Well, why would you use anything else? And the other thing that I've heard, um, so those, those people just drive me nuts. It's like, look, why don't you go look at the solution I am using? And then maybe you'll figure out why. 
Um, but the other thing that, that I've heard uh, about with MongoDB, and I've actually talked to several people who have run into this, is that it does scale up very well, and they continually solve a lot of the problems with its, its scaling and auto sharding. Yeah, but, yeah, I've heard about that. But at the same time, I mean, at a certain scale, it breaks down. It just, it, it just craps out. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if there are good explanations for that. And I think most people won't run into it. So it's probably not an issue, but, uh, I do know a few folks that have used it for large scale projects and wound up having it like drop data, lose data, you know, or, um, you know, not be able to get all of the data back that they need and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually just crash, um, because it couldn't handle what they had thrown at it. But my understanding is, is that it's gone leaps and bounds past those problems. But again, still there is some, some upper limit to what it can handle. Whereas it seems like something like Cassandra doesn't have that problem. I haven't heard of anyone finding an upper bound to what you can do with Cassandra. But at the same time, I mean, th that's just one consideration. And if you like the, the BSON, um, you know, where you can also deeply nest your objects and build indexes against them. I don't know how well they perform at like three or four levels deep with MongoDB, but Cassandra, you're limited to two levels deep. So, I mean, that, you know, that's another trade-off you make depending on whether you need to scale or whether or not you need these deep objects. And, um, you know, the, the indexing engine I understand on MongoDB is pretty good. So, I mean, all in all, it really, it, it just depends on what your problem is and, uh, you know, which, uh, which strengths are the most important to you. So I, I've got a scenario, scenario I want to bring up that's, that's really specific, well, to JavaScript. Um, mm -hmm. well, because that's what I've been using, but I guess, I guess Imagine you that. other languages as well. But, um, so, so we talk, we've talked about scale a lot. Um, but one thing I think is really important, uh, for me, isn't so much scaling up, it's scaling down. Um, when the Raspberry Pi starts shipping and people start getting it in their hands, I think that um, these are the kind of people that are a little bit smarter on average in terms of not maybe not smarter, but more experienced on average. Right. <laughs> Only smart I, people get Raspberry Pi. Well, I mean, I mean, it's just like it's one of those things where you have to already be in the community. You already have to know a little bit uh -huh. to, you know, it's it's not like people are going to be searching online. Like, how do I build a computer and come across Raspberry Pi? Right. Uh -huh. You know, so it's not like the PHP problem where like I don't have any friends that are programmers and I don't know what I'm doing. And so, oops, I accidentally landed on the worst possible thing that I could have found. Mm -hmm. um, they they they've already they're already in some sort of community where there's people that have have got experience. Right. So with the Raspberry Pi, there's going to be web frameworks um, uh -huh. that are going to be based on Node.js. I believe it's going to be a really popular thing to run Lua and uh, Node.js on the Raspberry Pi. In fact, Tim Caswell um, at the Utah JavaScript conference, we were talking at dinner. And he, um, so he's he's uh, ported Node.js to Lua, and it's called Love It, uh -huh. right? And um, he's really excited for the you know the Raspberry Pi stuff. But so I've got this this arm box, this music server, and I wanted to do a really simple database. Right. So, so the simplest thing you can do is you can just put everything into a single JSON file, right? Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of abstraction layers in Node.js for that. There's got to be at least 15 different uh, modules on NPM that basically are just a wrapper around a JSON file right. um, that acts as a database. And so there's some advantages to that, which are that it's really simple um, and that it's all going to be in process in memory. 
there's some disadvantages to that, which is when it starts to grow large, like say you've indexed every file that you've ever had on all your backup drives uh-huh. um, and have like a million records. Well, then it's not so easy to load that that uh, 200 megabyte file into memory all at one time. Right. And then if you have to put indexes into memory on top of that, then yikes. yeah. And then you also have this problem of well, what if that file gets corrupted, right? Because you're writing to this file every time you change something potentially. Mm-hmm. Well, 200 megabytes is a heck of a lot to be writing to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then if it gets corrupt, well, then you like have to manually go in there and and figure out where the file got corrupted and, and try to salvage it by, you know, adding some closing brackets or something. But you may have lost a lot of data if right. you know, the power suddenly turns off or whatever in the and the file system, for whatever reason, doesn't have the you know good enough error handling mechanism, or there was that ext4 bug that really was bothersome for a while, where people will do the copy on write semantic, but because the way the file system worked, the empty file would get saved um, at about the same time that the backup copy of the file was deleted, and so you could be left in a state where your file is just completely empty, right? Even though it has the journaling and all that. Um, so another way you can go about this problem, if you want to, you know, you just want to say stem, simple is you save everything into a different file. So every record you have, I mean, true document database right here. So every record you have, you you give it a key and you save it on the file system and you put it in some sort of folder structure mm-hmm. so that you don't end up with, you know, 40,000 files in one directory, but you, you know, stagger them a little bit. Right. Right. Well, that breaks down, too, because then um, you have this problem of uh, file access times go way up. Right. Um, your storage size goes way up because it's going to be four kilobytes for a file. that's like, uh, you know, five, six hundred bytes. Right. Because everything single thing has a node. And then if you want to do a search across it, oh, it's terrible because because then you have to walk over every single file. So that's like a right. terrible way to go about it. If you want something small and simple or set up an index file and load that into memory. And depending on the size of your index, then you're back to the big file problem. Right. Exactly. OK. So then there's this other solution you can go about, which is like you use something like Redis. But then if you're on a small arm device, you still can't fit that 200 megabytes into memory. Uh-huh. So so even though it's much more manageable, um, the thing would still have to be in memory. Right. And then you could try using Couch, but then Couch um, is going to, well, it'll really bloat the file size. It'll be a pretty decent match. But then if you need to, you want to get like a bunch of keys at a time mm-hmm. and then iterate through them, it might be a little clunkier. Right. You know, so then you go with SQLite, right? Well, then mm-hmm. SQLite, you run into this problem of the the text query, just like you do with um, Couch, but it's manageable because it only takes like 30 seconds or a minute, but it still takes like a heck of a long time. Right. A minute's an eternity on the machine. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I um, don't I don't know if there is a terrific solution for that because it seems like most of these solutions are built for um, systems or servers that have you know uh, a, a lot of resources to them. So it, it's kind of a different problem. Yeah, it it really is, and and that's why I just wanted to talk about it for a minute because mm-hmm. I I think we're going to see this. And um, Google's got the thing that IndexedDB is based on sounds kind of interesting. Um, I forget what it's called, but I don't know. The, the same thing that they use for Chrome, some of the node people have tried picking it up. I, th- I think right now the, the driver for it has kind of been abandoned and no one's picked it back up yet. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, I, I think it's called, no, Snappy is their compression protocol, I think. But it's got built-in Snappy. So every time you save um, anything to this, this database, it compresses it automatically. Right. Um, I wish I could remember the name. But anyway, I mean, I think with Raspberry Pi being so affordable, just 35 bucks for this, you know, powerhouse of an embedded system, that's a very interesting problem 
that uh, needs a very interesting solution. And I haven't quite figured it out yet myself because my media server right now is not usable because I put everything in, but I put in like 30,000 files. It's like, okay, this is working pretty good. And then I put in all the rest. Uh-huh. And now it's that now I'm like stuck trying to re-engineer it before I can actually have fun with it again. Right. Well, if if you find a solution or if one of our listeners has a solution, maybe they can bring that up. So why don't we go ahead and do some picks and then we'll wrap this up and we'll hopefully have a few more people on next week. So what are your picks? Um, you know what? You do yours first. Let me think about it for a second. <laughs> All right. So my first pick is actually... Um, uh, a friend of mine and uh, kind of a mentor of mine. His name's Cliff Ravenscraft. Um, I've brought him up on several of my podcasts before. I get a lot of people asking me um, what it takes to start a podcast. What what's involved? What do I need to do? How do I get started? What's what's entailed in that? If you really really want to start a podcast and you want to know how to do it right, then what I what I'm going to tell you to do is actually go over to. In fact, let me pull it up real fast so I can give you the right link. Um, um, but uh, Cliff has a podcasting A to Z co- course. Um, hang on, I'll find it here. Um, so anyway, it's going to, here we go, podcastingatoz.com. And it's the word to podcastingatoz.com. Anyway, um, the course is $999, but uh, I have a discount code that he gave me. Um, it's Wood, my last name, W-O-O-D. Um, so if you go enter that discount code, then um, he'll give you $100 off. And uh, he, he's also giving me a, a little bit of a commission if you use my code. But the, the real thing is, is, I mean, Cliff really gets it. He really understands how it works. Um, the, the course is four weeks, starts July 9th and goes until August 3rd. And um, seriously, he will show you how to set up your website. He'll show you how to um, set up your equipment. He'll help you figure all of that stuff out. Um, you know, uh, your, your podcast art. Um, I mean, everything, everything that you ever want to know. In fact, he's done this a few times and, um, he's, he's never actually had anyone ever ask him for a refund. I mean, that's how good it is. So anyway, um, so if you're interested in learning how to podcast and you want to get a, you know, just a professional, uh, course on how to do it, then go to podcasting A to Z and he's, he's really, really approachable. And, uh, he understands that people are coming in from all different walks of life to learn how to podcast. And so, I mean, this will start you at the beginning. And by the time you're done, you will know exactly what you're doing. So uh, go check that out. And once again, that's podcasting a to z.com. Um, other than that, I've also been um, I've been using the getting things done method. Um, I read a good chunk of the book um, a little while ago, and then I actually read the how to implement the system uh, while I was on vac. Well, I was on vacation. I was at a conference uh, last week in Vancouver, and on, on the airplane, I, I read this book, um, and I actually got my office pretty well organized. Um, one of the things that I purchased were these. Uh, they're the paper in and out boxes. And I got them off of Amazon and then I got these little, um, I don't know what to call them. They're, they're kind of little supports that you can put between them since they don't come stackable. 
And so anyway, I've got that set up over in the corner of my office and that's kind of my inbox outbox and, you know, pending projects list. And so, uh, you know, highly recommend those. I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. And then I've also been using things, which is a, a program um, right now. They only sync to iPod and iPad. Um, iOS devices and other Macs, of course, um, what I'd really like to do and the syncing to other Macs is through Dropbox. So it's, it's not completely, um, you know, seamless, but it, it works well enough for me. And, um, and hopefully they'll get an Android client together soon. But, you know, anyway, whatever the case is, it, it's just really nice because um, I haven't had to worry so much about what I'm forgetting to get done because now I have it all in a system that I can actually work with, work through. You know, I know where the information is. I know what I've got to get done. I know when I have to get it done by. Um, I have reminders set up for the stuff that's time sensitive and I can just work through it. And as long as I stay with the program, then then I can keep everything organized. So um, I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes and uh, I'll let AJ share his picks. Okay. So I, I found some. Um, one, Utah JS Conf was great. It was so well organized. Unbelievable for a first year. And the attendance was was great. Um, luckily, we had just enough room. And I think that next year is definitely going to be, be bigger because people are going to go home, tell their coworkers, tell their friends, whatever. I think we'll definitely have to have a different venue next year. Um, but props to Kip, who is at Mighty Kip on Twitter. Um, for putting that together and, uh, and, and Ken who helped out. And then, you know, there's a bunch of other guys that helped out too, but it was a great conference. I had a good time, good focus there, good talks, awesome people, um, exceeded my expectations. Definitely. Um, I wanted then, to go, but I was out of town. Like I said, you missed out, man, because it was, it was top notch. Um, and then the other thing is, so this was mentioned when I was talking with the guys at Utah JS Conf. They they knew the guy that started this, but there's this uh, online dating site called OKCupid, and it's made by programmers, so it's actually um, logical. Like it, I don't if you if you've ever used dating sites, which I guess you're you know you're all married and stuff, so you don't have to worry about that. But um, like a lot of them, just they're dumb. And this one makes sense, and it's really cool. It's legit. It's professional. Um, it you know it has a, a safe feeling about it. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's really cool. So, uh, all you single ladies listening, you can look me up there. And what was it called again? It's called OK Cupid. OK Cupid. Yeah. And I've actually had, um, right after, so at the conference, people were talking about it because somebody knew somebody that, that had created it or something. And then I, the next day I had a friend who's in a relationship and I was asking her like how they met and stuff. And that was how they met. So. Oh, cool. It's way legit. One of the things you don't think about once you're married. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for showing up, AJ. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm going to be doing everything I can to kind of fill things out next week so that we have a few more people on the show. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll wrap this up and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Bye.